0: All right, so let me um, let me just welcome Jonathan King up. Before he comes up, uh, uh, let me just uh, introduce him. So I got connected uh, to Jonathan King uh, by Gray. Uh, Jonathan King is from the United States, and he lives here now in Karawachi with his wife, Sharm, and his baby boy, also named Liam. Um, he teaches at Upeha as a lecturer in theology. And his uh, professional background was originally in electrical engineering. Later in life, he felt called by God to go to seminary. And he studied and got a degree from Westminster Sem- uh, Seminary, California. He's, or- he's been ordained and is ordained as an elder in the PCA. And he also has his PhD from uh, TEDS in Chicago, uh, <laughs> Illinois, uh, under Kevin Van Hooser. His dis- dis- dissertation had to do with the theology of beauty, which God published last year as a beauty of the Lord theology as aesthetics. So, uh, friends, I want you uh, let's let's welcome up uh, Jonathan King as he comes and brings the word of God for us. Thank you, I it. Good
1: morning. It's wonderful to be here uh, and share God a message from uh, God's word with you. Um, me and my wife were were here visiting a few weeks ago, actually, Uh, and what a delight that was, uh, to worship God uh, with God's people here uh, in this place. Please join me as I uh, read through uh, the passage, uh, the reading from God's Word. Mark chapter 8, verses 22 to 33. And they came to Bethsaida. And he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him home, saying, Do not even enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. Others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets of old. And he asked him, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them about the Son of Man, that he must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days, rise again and he said this plainly and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him but turning and seeing his disciples he rebuked Peter and said get behind me Satan for you are not setting your mind on the things of God but on the things of man this is the word of the Lord Please join me as I begin in prayer. Our Father and our God, we ask that you would, uh, you would speak to us by your word, through the power of your spirit, speak to our hearts, speak to our minds, meet each of us where we're at draw close to you have your way with us with all of us here gathered together in Jesus name amen now the text I read will serve as a thematic text it's not we're not going to focus it focus on it exclusively but it will be central to the theme that I'm going to develop, across Mark's gospel. And so let me just highlight, start by highlighting some of the things we see in our central text here. The healing of the blind man happens in two stages. Jesus wants to know from his disciples who people think he is. And then Jesus asks his disciples directly, who do you think I am? Peter, of course, is quick to answer. He confidently confesses Jesus is the Christ. Immediately, Jesus informs his disciples that he must be rejected, suffer, die, and be raised from death three days later. Peter corrects Jesus according according to Peter's own picture of what the Messiah is going to do. And Jesus, in turn, rebukes Peter telling him he's representing the agenda of Satan. Now before I hone in on this whole episode, I want to backtrack a bit and call attention to how in Mark different people groups perceive who Jesus is differently. I'll then relate that to our central passage in chapter 8 involving the healing of the blind man and Peter's confession of Jesus' true identity. Throughout the course of Jesus' public ministry, Mark shows how four different groups of people have their own understanding of who Jesus' true identity is. To the crowds that flock to see and hear Jesus, he was the healer. He was the miracle worker. He was the one who could cast out demons. To Jesus' mother and his own family, they thought Jesus was out of his mind at a certain point. To the Pharisees and other religious leaders, Jesus was was a blasphemer, one who could cast out demons, but not by the power of God, but by the power of Satan. Satan to those very demons cast out. Jesus was the son of the most high God, the holy one of God. To Jesus' own disciples, the 12 12 disciples, as they followed Jesus, he was their rabbi. He was their teacher. Ironically, it is, uh, one could even say in Mark's gospel, that it is the demons, and only the demons, at least up through the first half of the gospel, who truly understood Jesus' true identity. The Holy One, the Son of God, the Holy One of God. Now in chapter 4, Jesus tells the crowds the well-known parable of the sower and the seed. And immediately after this, he uses the occasion to reveal to his disciples an extremely critical spiritual point. So in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, and then I'll jump to verses 11 and 12 to keep things brief, we read, again, Jesus began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got up into a boat. And sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables. So that, quote, They may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Jesus takes this quote from Isaiah the prophet and applies it to those who would not come to perceive him for who he truly is. They would remain blind, in fact, to Jesus' true identity. But we may ask, why doesn't Jesus just tell them who he is, plainly? And the answer, it seems, is that he wants to, to train up his disciples first. All the different groups, they, have, they simply will process Jesus according to their own understanding of who he is, their own messianic expectations and preconceptions of what the Messiah is going to do. The outsiders have already made up their mind about who Jesus is. Jesus tells parables so that the outsiders won't understand. They will not get what he's talking about. You see, the parables give such people no information, that they can then use against Jesus to the Romans or any other authorities or leaders. But to those on the inside, these discern the meaning of Jesus' parables. They're given the secret to the kingdom of God. They're able to perceive Jesus for who he truly is. A bit later, Mark tells us in chapter 6 that Jesus goes back to his home base at Capernaum. And to set up the scene here, it's helpful to know that the Romans let the Jews have a king in the region of Galilee, a kind of puppet king named Herod. Now Mark informs us how word has uh, gotten out and spread all around to King Herod about this extraordinary Jesus and his disciples as well. And he tells us in verses 14 and 15, I'm reading uh, Mark chapter 6. Some, including Herod, are saying Jesus is John the Baptist, raised from the dead. Others say he's Elijah. And still others say he's a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. So, to the question, how are people perceiving who Jesus is? We're given more indications of what different people thought. It's quite interesting, isn't it? People from all around are just not getting who Jesus really is and what his message is all about. Soon after this part of the story, we come to another scene on the sea of Galilee. I'll, I'll be reading here Mark chapter 6 verses 57 to uh, 47 to 52 selectively. And when evening came, the disciples' boat was out on the sea, and Jesus was alone on the land. And sometime between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m., Jesus came to them walking on the sea. But immediately he spoke to them, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded but their hearts were hardened. You get the picture. Mark highlights in the pattern repeatedly throughout the course of Jesus' public ministry uh, of people misperceiving his true identity and his mission. There's one more incident, I believe, uh, that Mark intentionally sets up before we come to the part of Jesus' two-stage healing of the blind man. Peter's subsequent confession of Jesus. The Pharisees had just got done demanding a sign from Jesus to test him. And so Jesus cautions his disciples. In Mark chapter 8, verses 15 to 21, we read, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of the leaven of Herod. And they began to... Uh, discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread, and Jesus aware aware of this, said to them, "Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see? Having ears do you not hear? Do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not understand Now, in my in my imagination, I'm, I I want to say that this is like the first act of where face palming originated. Jesus, you know, you could just see him going, "Are you kidding me?" Here's Jesus warning them of a potentially deadly error, a potential misperceiving of the gravest consequences, and the disciples can only talk about the fact that there's only one loaf of bread. As an aside here, I was telling my wife that I was going to say, tell tell in my uh, sermon, this is where the act of face palming happened. And of course, my wife corrected me and said, well, actually, it's the Old Testament prophets and their message to Israel. That's where face palming happened. Good job, sweetheart. I'll concede the point. So... Watch. Watch out for the east of the Pharisees. Watch out for Herod. What is Jesus getting at in saying this? Well, Jesus had just come from engaging the Pharisees who did not believe who Jesus is. But how does this fit in with Herod? Well, because Herod had John the Baptist imprisoned But yet, at the same time, he liked listening to what John had to say. But ultimately, he had John killed. The disciples, it would seem, are in dangers of their hearts becoming hardened. Becoming hardened to the reality of who Jesus is as well. They've seen all the miracles. They've seen what Jesus had done but they themselves are potentially in danger of remaining blind to who Jesus is. They obviously still haven't gotten it yet. They still haven't understood exactly who this rabbi is that they've given up all to follow. Jesus is saying to his disciples, in effect, are you guys like the Pharisees? And Herod, don't be. Because these are people whose eyes see, but without really seeing. Whose ears hear, but without really hearing. Now we come, in this Mark's Gospel story, to our central passage. In Mark chapter 8. Here he transitions to the story of the blind man and which is brought to Jesus, and the people beg Jesus to restore his sight. I'll review the scene here again. Jesus agrees to the urging of the people and spits on the eyes of the blind man and lays his hands on him. Outside of one other instance, shortly before this, where Jesus spits on a deaf man to heal him, this doesn't, uh, th- this doesn't, Jesus' use of spit in this way uh, doesn't occur with anybody else. And I think it's revealing theologically for the message that Mark is wanting to communicate. Jesus asks the blind man if he can see now, and the blind man replies, I see people. They look like trees, though, walking around. Jesus then puts his hands on the eyes again and the guy's sight is restored perfectly. As to why Jesus uses spit on the blind man, I asked this question to my students uh, in class. I'm not kidding. One answer I got was that Jesus used so much spit (laughs) on the blind man that it was so thick on the eyes of the the blind man that he he couldn't see through the spit. (laughs) Now I'm the one doing the face palming. You know, incredible. Earlier, Jesus had just said, do you have eyes but refuse to see? Well, I believe, anyway, believe this is a healing that itself serves as a parable. It is seeing rightly and hearing rightly that must happen for the disciples to understand who Jesus is. What they need is for Jesus to open up their eyes. Our text goes on to say, quoting now chapter 8, verses 27 to 30. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and be killed, and after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now, the theological point I think Mark is driving at can be understood this way. The healing of the blind man happens in two stages. And it appears the opening of the eyes of the disciples will happen in stages as well. In other words, the disciples do come to understand Jesus as the Messiah, but their notion of the Messiah is mistaken. To them, the Messiah will be a victorious warrior, of some kind, and the disciples will be victorious warriors with him. They have a misconception of what it means for Jesus to be the Messiah. That's why this miracle is much more demonstratively performed. Jesus' disciples need, need their eyes to be open to grasp who Jesus is. And this healing miracle of the blind man serves as a parable to show the disciples that, like the blind man, they're beginning to see who Jesus really is, but they don't quite see clearly enough yet. They will come to understand who Jesus is rightly, but not just yet. Not in a single burst of clarity, undistorted by any misguided notions, of what Jesus' identity as the Messiah really means. Interestingly, uh, Matthew's gospel shows Jesus congratulating Peter when he confesses who Jesus is rightly. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 17, Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven... Mark, however, downplays Jesus' response to Peter's answer by showing Jesus Jesus telling Peter and the rest of the disciples, don't tell anyone. Now, it's helpful to remember that Mark was not one of the 12 disciples of Jesus. Mark was an assistant to Peter in Peter's ministry work. And so Mark's gospel account is influenced and informed for the most part by Peter's telling of Jesus story to Mark. Now understandably we see that Peter doesn't make himself out to be any kind of hero. We learn why with Peter, later on with Peter denying that he even knew who he even knew Jesus at all. We'll take a look at that in a bit. So this partial blindness is nowhere better illustrated shortly after this, (coughs) immediately after this in in chapter 9, where Mark describes the disciples arguing amongst themselves regarding what? Who's the greatest among them? The face palming of Jesus just continues. And again, a few scenes right after this. In chapter 10, verses 33 to 34, Jesus says to them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Jesus is not mincing any words here. There's no beating around the bush. Right on cue, James and John come right up to him with this doozy of a request. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Jesus said to them, what do you want me to do? And they say, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Now what they do not mean is after Jesus rises from the dead and is at the right hand of the Heavenly Father, they want to be seated at Jesus' sides. Not at all. They're thinking about once Jesus goes fully public with being large and in charge as the Messiah... They want to be ruling with him, one in his right hand, one in his left hand. They want to be in charge under Jesus. Later, Mark tells us what it means to be <clears throat> on the left and the right side of Jesus, it has to do with the cross. One cross on his left and one cross on his right with Jesus crucified on the cross in the middle. He's the Lamb of God whose death takes away the sin of the world. But they they think of Jesus' messianic identity as being a victorious warrior with the disciples themselves being leaders in the victory. But this is not the right sense of Jesus' messiahship. And the disciples are not going to be leaders with a victorious warrior messiah. No, like Jesus, they're to pick up their cross and follow him. But at this point, And now in the story, they're heading up to Jerusalem where Jesus will complete his mission. The disciples still don't get it. They still think Jesus is going to make one big splash as the Messiah. Nothing has changed. They still haven't had their eyes opened yet. Now, let's get to some application of this to our own lives. In our central text, we took notice of how the healing of the blind man happens in two stages, and that the healing in two stages serves as a kind of parable. It appears the opening of Jesus' disciples will happen in stages as well, as I had mentioned. In order to grasp who Jesus is, what his messianic mission is all about, and what it means to be a follower, a disciple of his. The apostle Peter, whose own perception of Jesus the Messiah was blurred by his own preconception of what being the Messiah uh, meant, Peter will serve as, as a foil as we see how the gospel gets applied Going back to when Jesus asked his disciples, but who do you say that I am? The sometimes impulsive but never timid Peter answers, you are the Christ. Right on, Peter. He got that exactly right. And and recall, I mentioned how in Matthew's gospel, how Jesus blessed him for answering rightly. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you but my Father in heaven. But Peter's perception of Jesus was nonetheless flawed. So in chapter 14, as Mark begins to draw the gospel story to its finish, a crowd with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests, scribes, elders, they come to arrest Jesus. Jesus is betrayed by Judas Iscariot. Judas is one of Jesus' twelve disciples. He's been with him all three years of Jesus' public ministry. He betrays him with the ploy of a kiss, no less. So they laid hands on Jesus and take him into custody. And Mark tells us in verse 47 that one of those who stood by with his sword, one of those uh, stood by. Uh, drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and he cut off his ear now Mark doesn't say who this, is, this someone is but we know from John's gospel that it was Peter Peter is packing, the one packing the sword and he cuts off the right ear of the high priest's servant Malchus bring it on says Peter And he rushes to to defend Jesus. But then this happens. They lead Jesus to the house of the high priest. And Mark writes in chapter 14, I'm reading here verse 54 and then verses 65 to 72. And Peter followed Jesus at a distance into the courtyard of the high priest And some began to spit on Jesus and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out again into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders uh, began to, uh, began, uh, again said to Peter, Certainly, you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But Peter began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And Peter broke down and wept. You know what kind of tears Peter was shedding here? Tears of utter shame. Not just a bit of shame, but the deepest, darkest shame one could ever imagine. Peter's shame is, of course, to be seen in the backdrop or against the backdrop Of his own boast, boasting and bravado, let me put this in its proper frame. The chief priests, scribes, and elders brought Jesus into the courtyard where the high priest lives, and Peter crept in as close as he could get to Jesus. At that time, Jesus was being severely beaten and abused. Peter denied knowing Jesus three times when questioned by a simple servant girl. The way Luke, in his gospel story, puts it, at the moment the rooster crows, the Lord turned and looked at Peter. It's hard to imagine a more soul-piercing gaze. And don't let the fact that Jesus had predicted this in any way lessen its impact. This is brash, brazen, fearless Peter. You know, the one who insisted to Jesus just the night before. Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away, said Peter. Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you, Peter said. Lord, I am ready to go with you both to prison and to death. Yeah, that Peter. He's the Peter who's one of Jesus' three best friends. This is the only disciple with the guts enough to walk out on the water of the Sea of Galilee when Jesus beckons him to come. The one whose name, whose name means the rock. Not Dwayne Johnson, the rock, Peter. The same Peter who when Peter asked his disciples, but who do you say that I am? Quickly and confidently confessed, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. But now, under the gaze of Jesus, having three times just denied even knowing Jesus at all, while his most dearest friend was being mocked, tortured, and humiliated, Peter wants to sink into the ground with shame. His world is shattered How is he any better than Judas, than what Judas did in betraying Jesus? What hope is there for him at this point? You might be thinking uh, right about now, whoa, 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 Mr. Guest Preacher, sir. I came here to hear about the good news of the gospel Not to be brought down uh, hearing about Peter's tragic tale. The good news will be served up next soon, I promise. But for right now, just reflect within yourself. If God made a public reveal of your entire life, are there things that you would deservedly be ashamed of? Do any such things as these ring a bell? Regrettable choices you've made. People you've really hurt, perhaps even betrayed. People you've simply used. People you've just written off. People you should have helped out, but instead turned a blind eye. People you should have forgiven, but instead you held on to unforgiveness. Times you acted so selfishly, so self-focused, that no one else even mattered around you. Times you should have stood up or spoken out against someone or something, but instead played the coward and said or did nothing. Or like Peter, times in your own life, whether in word or in the way you chose to handle yourself in some situation, that in effect equates. To denying that you even are a follower of Jesus. Well, there's no reason to pretend we're all in the same boat. Before God, we absolutely know that there's countless things that every single one of us would deservedly be ashamed of. Including how at times we've also denied in word or conduct any identification with being a follower of Jesus. But fear not, for now we come to the good news. And that takes us to the end of Mark's gospel with the resurrection of Jesus. Several of the women go to the place where Jesus was buried to anoint his body with spices. Mark writes in chapter 16, the last chapter, verses 5 and 7. Then, as they went into the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the, on the right side, and they were alarmed. But but he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He's, he has been raised. He is not here. Look, there is the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples, even Peter, that he is going ahead of you into Galilee. You will see him there just as he told you. Now notice how intentionally Mark highlights how the young man, who's really just an angel of the Lord, says to the women, go tell the disciples, even Peter that Jesus will meet him in Galilee. And not only, not only that, but the angel also remarks, you seek Jesus the Nazarene. This is the exact phrase that Mark used in the context of Peter's denying Jesus three times, that he even knew Jesus. The narrative point Mark is making here is that Peter, the same one whose world was shattered, who sunk to the ground in tears of shame for denying Jesus, this this Peter's relationship to Jesus will be restored. Jesus himself will see to this restoration. Mark reinforces this point beautifully at the last part where the angel says, you will see him there as he told you. Recall how Jesus had said to his disciples, Do you have eyes but refuse to see? The eyes of the disciples, spiritually speaking, were at least partially blind, but the now resurrected Jesus would open their eyes. Not only will the disciples see Jesus uh, physically, but they will see with their understanding, with the eyes of faith, finally seeing Jesus for who he is, the crucified and resurrected Messiah. Even Peter, the one who had lost all hope for himself and all hope in Jesus the Messiah, even Peter will have his eyes open to see Jesus rightly and understand what being a follower of Jesus really means. So what is the good news for us today What is the takeaway for each of us? Here I'll conclude, if if you want to put up uh, some points. Here I'll conclude with the good news of the gospel as offer and as challenge. The good news of the gospel means that Jesus says to us today, just as he said to his disciples, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. For Jesus himself, by his spirit, can and will redeem our shame-ridden lives. For if Peter, one of Jesus' most dearest friends, but the one who denied him at the very point when he was being abused and humiliated by evil men, if Peter could be completely forgiven and fully restored, by the grace and mercy of what God in Christ accomplished on the cross, then be absolutely assured that the forgiveness and restoration that comes from God alone is available to each and every one of us as well, no matter whatever shame burdens you. Lastly, the question That Jesus asked his disciples, he likewise asks each of us But who do you say that I am? Do you have misplaced notions of who Jesus is or what it means to follow him? Is your Jesus defined by your identity politics of one kind or another? then perhaps you're not seeing Jesus rightly. The better question is, how does who Jesus is affect your identity, who you are? Is your Jesus defined by the social justice causes you're passionate about? Then perhaps you're not seeing Jesus rightly. The better question is, are you passionate about the kingdom that Jesus is passionate about? Is your Jesus only a Reformed Presbyterian Jesus? Then perhaps you're not seeing Jesus rightly. Well, Whatever blind spots you have, whatever blind spots I have, it's Jesus himself by his spirit who can and will restore our eyesight to perceive him rightly as we look to him with the eyes of faith. Now, may the Lord Jesus by his spirit Help us to know him rightly, that we may follow him rightly, and that we might live for him rightly. To God be the glory, and all of God's people said, Amen. Please join me in prayer. Lord, before you, as Pastor Tazar had said earlier in our liturgy, before you, in in whom is no moral corruption, perfect in every way, in goodness, wisdom, righteousness, power, truth, perfect purity, I pray that you would receive any of the burdens that any of us and all of us carry of shame and guilt. Receive them from us, even those of us that know you and seek to walk with you. Let us not be burdened by baggage, by sin, by shame that you have taken away on the cross. Anyone here is carrying around burdens that they ought not to carry, but give to you to seek that restoration of heart and mind. Please do that work by your Spirit. Help us all to perceive you rightly, Lord. As a congregation, let this church know you rightly, follow you rightly and live for you rightly. Thank you for the truth of your word and the straightforward simplicity that you speak to us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.